0: All right. Can you all hear me Okay. All right. All right. We're going to begin in first Peter here in a few minutes. You can go ahead and turn there. Some of you know that my my dad, my dad was a carpenter. My dad built homes for a living for 30 plus years. One thing my dad understood and and he understood from remodeling houses, too, is that if you if you don't get the foundation right. The whole house will eventually begin to crumble. And there'll be many problems, many things will go wrong with the house, and it will not endure. If there are cracks in the foundation over time, that house will begin to crumble and shift and fall apart. It'll cause structural damage that you can't see initially, but will be seen over time. Well, the Apostle Peter understood that as well. And so he uses some metaphors about building this morning that help us to see how important it is to have the right foundation. What Peter does is he uses actually a couple of different metaphors. He uses a metaphor for body He's going to use the metaphor for a building, to both do the same thing, to to point us to the work of Jesus. Jesus' design for the church, in building the church, was to encourage his saints and show them that we have now in Christ new privileges. We stand on a better foundation than the Old Testament saints did even, because now we have the new privileges of being able to come directly to God, having access to the Father through the work of Christ. Something else that's interesting in Peter... This morning, as we're going to look at this text in chapter two in a moment, is he uses a lot of Old Testament passages to make his point. He uses these Old Testament passages and prophecies about Jesus to show the superiority of the work of Christ in the New Testament and, and to bring a sense of continuity to his readers who are primarily made up of Jews and Gentiles, and show them that God has an ultimate purpose that He has ordained from the very beginning, that He is going to create a people. A people who are set apart unto him. A special people. He's going to refer to them as a holy priesthood. A set apart people. And this would be encouraging to these these saints here that are actually referred to as scattered aliens. They're going through suffering. They're going to suffer for their faith. They're going to suffer in a Gentile world that's not accommodating to Christians. It would comfort them because they would hear in this this language that, that Peter uses. It's the language of the Old Testament promises to the Old Covenant people, and now they're being brought to their fruition in Christ, and saying these privileges are now yours, as New Covenant Christians, those who have placed their faith in Christ, and and they're saying these are things that only Old Testament people could do. Now we can do even better in Christ. So it's showing the superiority of Jesus to the Old Covenant, to the old system. Last week in chapter two. We saw some commands. This week, we won't look at commands. We're going to look at exhortations, encouragements, edification. Peter's going to build. Edification means to build. He's going to build us. He's going to build us on the rock, on the cornerstone. But last week, in chapter 2, he commanded us to put aside sin that would weaken the body. Put aside sin that would weaken the body. Put aside sins that hurt people in the church. We saw that in verse 1. Put aside all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander. And then he tells us, he commands us here to also put aside and to feed on God's word so we can build a strong body. Remove what weakens the body, feed what strengthens the body. What is it that strengthens the body? Well, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, long for the gospel, long for the truth, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. He's talking about in sanctification. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. That's what he's getting at this morning. He's saying, look, you want to grow, you want to put away these things, put on this, and you will grow in Christ's likeness as a body. Now, what I want you to understand this morning when we read this text, later on in the text, there's a, there's a scripture that we all use, and I think we use it somewhat correctly but, because we take it as a whole from the rest of the New Testament scriptures about the priesthood of the believer. And it's very appropriate. It's very right, but I don't think that's the context in which it's given here. It's not given to talk about the individuality of the priest. It's talking about a priesthood, a plurality. There are places in Hebrews that talk more about the fact that we are now able to stand before God's throne unashamed and unafraid because of the work of Christ. We don't need mediators. We don't need any other mediator. We can now access to God through Christ. But that's not really the context that's given here when he talks about a holy priesthood. So understand that when we come to this because it's very important. He's talking about The church in this chapter, he's talking about the corporate body, the whole context. He's saying, if you're going to suffer in chapter one, know these truths about God's election. Know these truths about God's sovereignty. This will comfort you. But then also know this, that God has put you in a body, a family. He is now your father at the end of chapter one. And in that family, you have brothers and sisters who you need to fervently love. And he tells us to, to do that, we have to put away things. We have to feed on the word. And here in chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, he's going to tell us that if we're going to grow, if we're going to build a strong body, we need to know two things. You need to know two things this morning if you're going to build a strong body. Number one, you need to know who we are built upon. Who we are built upon. And number two, we need to know what we are being built into. What we are being built into. You need to know if you're going to have a strong body, you need to know who is your foundation, And what does it look like around you? What are you being built into? What is the rock you stand on? And what is that rock intended to produce around you? And it's going to produce around you a body. If you're standing on Christ, Christ gave his life for the church. Jesus loves the church. Jesus died for the church. Jesus promised to build his church and the gates of Hades cannot prevail against us. So we are being built on him and built into something here being built into a people for God's own pleasure encircled by God protected by God now let's read in first peter 2 just 1 through 8 to kind of get a flow of the context we're really primarily going to look at 4 and 5 but we're going to read all this together here first peter chapter 2 verse 1 therefore putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies long For the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord and coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ for this is contained in scripture behold i lay in zion a choice stone a precious cornerstone and he who believes in him will not be disappointed this precious value then is for you who believe but for those who disbelieve the stone has been the stone which the builders rejected This became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom, they were also appointed. They stumble because they were disobedient to the word. It's another emphasis on the fact that we need to know the word. We need to be built up in the word. We need to know how the word fits together rightly in this spiritual house. First thing we see in verse 4, Peter tells us who we are built upon. And we come to him as to a living stone. We're coming to him who is the living stone, the one who is rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Now, we need to understand that verse 4 flows immediately out of verse 3, right? Contextually, we understand that. It flows immediately out of verse 4, out of at verse 3, that we have tasted of the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him, we need to come to him who is the living stone. Now, to understand and trace this back further, you need to understand the Lord referred to here and the hymn referred to here goes all the way back to verse 20 of chapter 1. This is the antecedent. takes us back to verse 20. For he was foreknown from the foundation of the world, but has appeared in the, these last times for the sake of you. Now, who would that be? That's Jesus. For, it says, but uh, for the sake of you he appeared who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So verse four, when it says that we are to come to him, it's pointing us to Jesus coming to him. Peter, Peter states that clearly, that Jesus is the one referred to. He's our redeemer. He's our source of faith and hope. So as we're coming to him, we're being drawn to him continually. This is not just at the initial act of salvation. He's talking about Christians. Coming continually to Jesus. It, it, it's a repeated action It's implied here. It's a continuous action of coming. And the word, if you trace it out, it became, becomes the word to draw near. Drawing near to Jesus as Christians brings us strength and protection. That's why he's called a living stone, a rock. Okay? A foundation stone. Peter's point is basically out of verse 3 that if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, then you will be continually coming to him you will be continually finding and deriving your strength from jesus how do you come to him you come to him in prayer you come to him in fellowship you come to him in his word that's how you are nourished in the faith that is also how you grow in sanctification those are the three means god has given us prayer the word and the fellowship of the saints those are means of grace to us to help us to grow in our sanctification Verse 4, part A says we should come to him as to a living stone. See that? As a living stone. Stones typically aren't alive, are they? No. Stones are dead, but not this stone. This stone is the one that was raised from the dead. And he lives forevermore, interceding for his children. He's a living stone. He's a life-giving stone, a life-giving protector. That's what he's getting at. He's identifying Jesus as the one who we come to continually to strengthen us and protect us like a stone, like a fortress. We're built on him. He's called a living stone. And that really that reference kind of points back to a cornerstone. When they would build any building, a temple in Israel, they started out with a special cornerstone. That's how they lined up the, the vertical and the horizontal. They had to have a perfectly hewn stone had to be straight, had to be flat, had to be correct, because that set the standard for everything else. And if that was wrong, there would be no shelter and no protection. But Jesus is referred to as that protector, as that cornerstone, as that living stone who builds the church and protects the church. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, turn with me to Deuteronomy 32. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy God is referred to as this kind of stone. He's referred to as a foundation stone, a place of shelter for his people. He's a source of strength for his people. Deuteronomy 32 refers to him in such a way. in Verse three and four. In the Song of Moses, he says, for I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. God is referred to as the rock. The just one. The protector of his people. Now go back with me to Peter. In chapter 2. Peter is going to take that, that idea. That very very Jewish idea of a cornerstone. A living stone. And apply that term that was referred to. As God in the Old Testament, he's going to refer that to the Lord Jesus, God the Son in the New Testament in verses 6-8 through eight, when he quotes these passages from the Old Testament. He quotes here from Isaiah 28 in the first passage. And he quotes from Psalm 118 in the next passage. Look what it says in verses 6 and 8 of Peter chapter 2. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion, in Israel, a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. He's quoting from these Old Testament passages to say, this is the one in whom you now believe. They they saw him as God in the Old Testament. He's God in the New Testament too. And his name is Jesus. You have now placed your faith in this cornerstone. The rock. The shelter, the protector of God's people. And I think verse 7 is an especially touching verse to me when I read this. Understand the context. Peter is talking to people who are suffering. Suffering for their faith. They're, They're being maligned. They're being mocked. They're being ridiculed. They're being attacked. And he's telling them, here's something to hang on to in the midst of all your suffering. This valuable one, this precious one in God's sight, this valuable one, he is given for you who believe. He is yours. This is your cornerstone. Peter's telling us Christians that that we have Jesus now as our shelter. Jesus is our foundation stone. Jesus is the one who builds his church, and you're a part of it. He is your protector. He is your God. He's the living stone that you're built up in. And if you believe in him, you have life in this living stone, eternal life. But if that's true, there's also a contrasting truth. If you have life believing in Jesus, if you don't believe in this cornerstone, if you reject this cornerstone, what is the contrary to life? Death. If you don't accept him, if you reject this stone, this truth, this stone itself will crush you to death. If you reject this truth, this this is the only way to God, is through Jesus Christ, God the Son, through his redeeming work. If you reject that, verse 8 says... That that stone of stumbling will become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And what that meant was, in Peter's day, on a on a dirt road that they traveled, was there would be a little rock, maybe a small rock, but it was outcropping, it was sticking up. And that rock, if you weren't discerning, if you weren't careful in your judgments, you could trip over that rock. And then it says, you will st- stumble over this rock, the stone, but you will also fall on a rock of offense. And that was a rock bed that was laying on the other side of the stone. So you lack of discernment and understanding that that's a danger, tripped over it, and you are crushed under your own weight on the rock around you, on the gravel around you. It would be a judgment of your stupidity. It would be a judgment of your lack of discernment. The rock's in the middle of the road. It's obvious. How could you trip over this? This rock is big. It's in the way. What What's wrong? Well, they were blind. They were dead in their sins. And dead men can't see the rocks. So the very truth of the gospel can be before a person, and apart from God's illuminating grace and sovereign mercy, they will trip right over them and trip right over that rock that is Christ and find themselves on the day of judgment under his wrath. Because they have seen him clearly in Scripture. And what Peter has in mind here are the people that he dealt with in his day the religious establishment in Israel. Look what it says again in 4, part B. Basically, he tells us that we come to a living stone which has been rejected by men. And the men he's referring to are the religious people in Israel. Peter's referring directly to them. Now, he's going to also indirectly refer to others, but here he's directly referring to those who measured this cornerstone, analyzed it, and then said, "Huh, uh it doesn't fit our standards. So they rejected Jesus. That would be the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. For them, Jesus wasn't enough. For them, Jesus wasn't religious enough. For for them, Jesus wasn't righteous enough for the legalists in Israel. He wasn't up to their standards. They had set a new standard, greater than God's standards. And he wasn't fitting their standards anymore. He didn't measure up. And if, if a person today doesn't have their eyes on Jesus and they're trying to set their own righteousness they're trying to find their own way through religion, that's what they're doing, too. They're measuring Jesus up against their religious ideas, their philosophies and saying, I don't like the way he fits. So therefore, he can't be the only way I must be able to find another way on my own. But in this context here in verse four, he's talking about those people in Israel primarily. And the Jews, even that were reading this letter, would have understood this really clearly. He was saying that the religious establishment considered Jesus as too irreligious. He was too shameful. Jesus was too weak, according to their measurements. He just wasn't the right man for the job, according to their measurements. Yet Jesus himself said, you have set the standard on the wrong level. I am the standard of righteousness. I am the one from God, chosen by God. Sent by God to redeem my people. But maybe you're not my people. Maybe you're the sons of the devil, not the sons of Abraham. Look at Matthew 12 to see how this happened. Matthew 12. The religious establishment set up standards that were not in the scriptures. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. And so whatever we see Jesus doing, understand this. It's righteous and understand this that men in their own religious systems can set up their own standards that have nothing to do with the scriptures but may look higher than God's word yet in reality they're neglecting the weightier things of God like showing mercy but look what he says here in Matthew 12:1 to see an example of why they how they measured Jesus and how they rejected him at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples became hungry and he began to pick and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples, do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests only or alone? Or have you not read in the law... That this, on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered and they questioned Jesus asking, is it not lawful to heal on the Sabbath or is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they may accuse him? Now, listen, they're coming to Jesus, not because they want to see something good happen to this man. They're coming to judge Jesus and try to trip him up. There is no righteousness in their questions. There is no goodness in their motives. Yet they were the ones who set the standard. They said, look at us. We are the standard. Yet they come to Jesus with deceptive hearts. And he said to them, verse 11, that what man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then... He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Jesus heals a man, and they want to kill him. They said his standards aren't the same as our standards. Our standards are better. He's breaking the Sabbath. Jesus said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am your rest. Jesus, aware of this in verse 15, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. Until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. They didn't like that either. Gentiles being given hope through this Messiah? There's no way. This can't be so. The measuring stick that they had was beyond Scripture. It was in man's own unrighteous heart. They tried to establish a way that was harder. Basically, Jesus said, you keep people out of heaven. You make them twice the son of hell as yourself. By your standards. He says, I come to give you life. They thought that Jesus didn't measure up. He was too weak. He didn't fit their mold. Now look back in 1 Peter. Verse 4b, part b. The first part of that, I mean, just thinking about this, This is we know directly he's referring to the people who would have been his initial readers and speaking of the time he lived in as those who were part of the establishment in Israel. But indirectly, he's referring to any person, even today, who hears the claims of the gospel and knows what the gospel is. And they measure the good news by human standards and they reject God's chosen way of salvation. Those people who do that are, according to this passage, doomed to be crushed at their death, doomed for judgment. If they say that Jesus is a way and not the way, they've set a new standard. If they say it's Jesus plus works to be saved, they set a new standard outside of the gospel. And those people will find themselves on that day standing at the gate and hearing those words from the Lord Jesus Christ, I never knew you. Because they based their, their way of salvation on this. Didn't we do all these things in your name? That's why you led us into heaven, because of what we did, Right? Didn't we do all this? We healed. We cast out demons. It's because of our works. Right. And he's going to say, I never knew you. You set a new standard. It was works plus grace. It's all of grace through Christ's work, because if it's anything else, Jesus's work wasn't sufficient. That's what you're saying. If you have to add anything to grace, anything to Jesus's atoning work, Jesus didn't get the job done. That's what you're saying. So if if you reject the revealed word of God, here in this passage, even in chapter 1 of Peter, you're saying that there's a better standard and it's not Jesus. And you're going to find on that day a very sad situation. You will be doomed. You'll be falling under the weight of the gospel and being crushed by the very thing you've rejected. Now, part C of verse 4, Peter goes on to say that here Christ is choice. men, Men considered him as weak and insufficient, yet the one who knows everything perfectly considers Jesus as choice and precious in his sight. He's choice and precious in the sight of God. He says that God the Father esteems Jesus as precious, chosen, elected for this purpose, one who has high value. God, Almighty God, says about God the Son, He is highly valued, though men cannot see it in their unregenerate state. He is the greatest. He is the only way to salvation. And he is chosen for this purpose. That's why he was the one who was ordained from the foundation of the world to be our redeemer, to die and be our blood sacrifice, to take away our sins. And what's amazing is, as you read through Peter here, He's getting at people who hear this and know this and understand this is a gospel message from God, yet they're they're confounded by it. They can't believe it. This can't be this easy. Well, it's not easy. It costs Jesus his life. Grace isn't cheap. It's costly. But it doesn't cost you anything. It costs Jesus everything. But it confounds the wise of this world. This stone, this rock is an offense to the world. Number one, it points out their sin. If Jesus had to die, that means that he died for what? He died for sin. That implies that if I have to believe in Jesus, I have to admit that I'm a sinner. Well, I'm not a sinner. I'm a good guy. I'm as good as you. Well, that's not the standard. Jesus is the standard. He's the measuring stick. But this stone is, is, is confounding to the wise of this world. But, it, but at the same time, it's the place that we find hope and rest. Those who are weak, those who are humbled by this truth, Find strength and nourishment. Look, look at 1 Corinthians. See that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, they couldn't figure out a way to get to God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message proclaimed, preached, to save those who believe. For indeed, Jew... Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, the elect, both Jew and Greek, Christ, Messiah, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now he says, Consider your calling, brothers Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. For those who believe, Jesus is the source of our salvation. Jesus is our wisdom. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our sanctification. Jesus is our redemption. He is our rock. He is our foundation. He is what brings us into this faith, and he is what we grow on in our faith. We never get past Jesus. We rely on Him. We are to come near to Him daily, drawing near to God through Christ, who is our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. And listen, I like what what Paul does here. Basically, he says, if you see Jesus this way, if, if this is what your estimation, if this is how you measure Jesus, that He is your wisdom and righteousness, then you have the same view that God the Father has of Him. He is precious to you. You can't redeem yourself. You can't even, even though sanctification is syncretistic, it's you working with God. Even that, though, apart from God, is impossible. Without the Spirit of God residing in you, you can't clean up yourself. And so so he's precious to you in every aspect of your Christianity. Your life is connected to his. If you're separated, there's no union, there's no life. And so you're saying... I believe in this you're saying I believe in God's estimation of Jesus God's measurement is the measurement by which I measure Jesus now he is precious He is highly valued to me and what I love about it is if your estimation is that Jesus is precious you can't brag in it there's no boasting it's only because of God's illumination through the Holy Spirit that's what he says you know all this verse 29 so that no man may boast before God you can't take any credit for this it's all of grace he opens our eyes, he redeems our life, he sanctifies us for a purpose to set us apart, to bring him praise and honor in the earth and throughout eternity. Go back with me to first Peter, verse five. In verse five, Peter's gonna tell us what we're being built into. What we're being built into here is, is we are being built, and it's very important that you understand the word being built. It's not that it's it happened at conversion. You're done. It's an act of continued growing, continued connectedness to the living stone and to living stones. So, this is an act that continues throughout your life. You are being built into, and he's going to tell us a couple of things. You're being built into a new house, you're being built into a new house, a new priesthood, so that you can do something new also, so you can bring God new praises through Jesus. That's like an outline within an outline, I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is, okay? It, you, he, you're being built into a new house, a new priesthood, so that you can bring new praises through Christ. Okay? Verse five. You also, now just 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 hang on to that for just a second. If you were these Christians scattered around thinking there's nobody else going through the suffering that I'm going through because of Jesus, I don't have any hope. I'm I'm tired, I'm weary, I'm worn. And all of a sudden, you hear the Apostle Peter write to you. You also. You are now part of the living stone. You also as living stones. God hasn't forgotten you. God is building you and in you hope. You are being built up as a spiritual house. For a holy priesthood. You need to circle that word for. That's your purpose. For a holy function. To do the function. Offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through that's the way you do it instrumentally through Jesus Christ so the first thing we see is we're we're being built into a new house we're we're now called according to this passage we're called a spiritual house a spiritual building and that spiritual building is built on Jesus and what's great about it is this spiritual building is not like the spiritual or the buildings of the Old Testament places of worship those buildings of worship were basically built and established in one location. The spiritual building built on Christ is scattered throughout the world and it gathers locally. It's universal, yet it's visible here locally. You're being built on Christ, not a limited location, but a spread out location built on Him to be a spiritual house. Your living stones being built up into this house. We're made into living stones like Christ, it says. Basically what this means is we are being united. The idea, the imagery of stones, building, stacking stones, right? Constructing stones. You have to fit them together. And what's interesting here is after the cornerstone is set, not every other stone is the same size. They look different. In other words, there's there's differentiality within the stones, just like there is here in this body. You don't all look the same. You don't all like the same things, but you love the Lord Jesus. That's what builds you together. So you're being fitted together, laid stone on top of stone to build the spiritual house to the glory of God through Christ. Jesus died to build the church. You're the church. You're the spiritual house. Again, in the Old Testament, God built temples. He called us to build temples. And and those places, those temples were places where God's glory would reside. It was very important. God's glory would show up. But understand this. All the temple imagery in the Old Testament were shadows. They were types of this temple. Temple of your body and the temple of the church. Corporately gathered. I don't mean the building. But gathered together. They were shadows of the reality of the church. God's basically now displaying his glory, not in a building, but in a people. A called out people. People who are set apart. To Christ, to worship him, to serve one another, to serve one another in word and in deed. That's what Peter's getting at. Love your brothers fervently. Love the word of God. Serve Jesus. You're set apart by the Holy Spirit to obey him. We can do that now because we have something special residing in us that those temples didn't have. If they did have it, it was only temporarily. We have it 24-7. We have God, the Holy Spirit. He abides in us. He never departs the church. he is always with us. Look at 1 John 3. 1 John 3. Verse 23. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. The Spirit resides in us and and confirms we belong to one another. We are being built into this as living stones placed one on top of the other. That's why, understand this, I have a great reverence for you, the church. You're the people I'm called to minister to. You're the people of God. You don't belong to me. I'm an under-shepherd. You belong to the great shepherd. And this is frightening for me. But it's glorious to see you being built together in love, in doctrine, in truth. Growing together, applying God's grace to one another in the fellowship of the redeemed. Jesus is pleased when you do that. That's why he died. He died for the church. Because through the church, his work is manifest to the world. You are a picture of Christ to the world. The way you love each other, the way you apply truth to one another... It's how you initially build up your own understanding to go out into the world and display Jesus. And they're going to know you're credible when they see you loving like Jesus in the church. That's why he makes a great emphasis on unity in truth and unity in fellowship. That's why we put away sin and we pick up the word. That's what keeps us united together. The church is a spiritual building. We're made up of individuals United in Christ, indwelt by the Spirit, and we're meant to grow together. Fellowship is not... It's not optional. It's a command. And if you're coming to Him daily, you want to come to others who come to Him daily, and you want to be encouraged by one another. You need to provoke one another on to good works. So the only place you can come together corporately is with other believers. And worship the Lord Jesus who died for you. It's a corporate setting that God God has always had in mind. He's always had in mind a people who are called by His name from the foundation of the world that would be His ambassadors in this world until He comes. And when He comes, He gives us things that we don't deserve. He gives us crowns of glory. He gives us a place to rule. He gives us a new earth, a new heaven. All new because of Christ and all for Christ. And we serve him as the people of God. We're being built together now for that reason. We're being built together as what Peter's point is. When you go back to Peter, look at 1 Peter 2. His point is, in this whole argument, is we are living stones, united together, growing together. We're not individualistic. We're corporate. That's what he's getting at. He's talking about corporate growing together, corporate living stones coming alongside to make a spiritual house. Flip over to verse nine. Look at verse nine here in chapter two. I want you to notice something. I want you to take note of something in your Bible. I'm not going to cover this text today, but we're going to cover it next week, Lord willing. But look what it says. It says something about a new race, a new priesthood and a new people. That's what we're called to be. Now, notice what it doesn't say. It says we're called to be a new race. It doesn't say we're called to be individual citizens. We're a part of a race of people. We're called to a new priesthood. We're not called individual priests. It's a priesthood. It's a group. We're called to be a new people, not individuals, not loners. You don't live the Christian faith alone. God's given you his church. Look at Ephesians 2. This is how we need to sum up the way that the church should look, is the way God sums it up in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Verse 13, and and understand this, when I'm preaching to you about the church and you are receiving the word of God as a church, this message is for you, from God, okay? This is God speaking to you this morning to build you up, to understand your role in this church, this local church. He has a high priority on the local church. The New Testament letters are written to local churches. It's very important that we have truth and unity based on the word because God has a a reason for that. He wants us to be joined together like a family. Look what it says in verse 13, chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That would be Gentiles like us. For he himself is our peace. He made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the separation which is in the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. By the cross, by it having put to death the enmity, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, the Gentiles and the Jews. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Notice you see the Trinity in that one verse. It's through the Trinity. It's through Him, Jesus, we have access okay, in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. Notice what He calls us. He doesn't call us individuals. You're fellow citizens with the saints, the called out ones, the set apart ones, and are called and are of God's household. His oikos. You're part of God's oikos. You know what that means? Part of God's family. The family of God. Have you ever heard that old hymn? Old song? Family of God? This is what it's derived from. Aren't you glad that you are a part of the family of God? But you're there because of Christ. Because of God's mercy. And you're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, that's us, are being fitted together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. You see all that connectedness? That's why we need you here. We need your spiritual gifts. We need one another for edification. We need one another for sanctification. We're being built together. The Bible is addressing the church. In these passages, the gathered body. We're being fitted together to display God's glory as a family. Again, we're not called to live in isolation. We're not called to live in separation from the church. Separation from the church is what we call church discipline. If you want to be separated from the church, it's usually because you have sinned against God and others and you're unrepentant. And that's part of the penalty is you're segregated from the fellowship of the saints so that if you're a believer, you'll be miserable because you can't stand to be separated from God's people and you'll come back. So if you want to live in separation, what's that tell you about your, your soul's condition? Something's not right. The stones that Peter's talking about are meant to fit together. They fit together so they can all be functioning together. And what I love about this is Peter and Paul both never talk about the church as a building, not as a physical building. Talks about it as a. They use a metaphor of the body and then of a building, and the body and of a building. A building, in the sense the spirit comes inside and dwells, but a body, in the sense that the spirit activates the body and makes it move. The spirit comes in to cause us to serve, to cause us to function like a body functions hands and feet and mind, and moving out and serving others. The spirit comes in for that kind of work, not just to make us feel satisfied. The Holy Spirit's abiding presence in the Christian isn't for our own edification. It's for the edification of the church. We come and share our gifts to build up the name of Christ as a church. Look back in 1 Peter 2, 5, part B. We just saw that we were built into a new spiritual building. Now he's going to tell us we're being built into a new priesthood. And understand this, a new priesthood is built on Christ and that priesthood again is not limited like it was in the Old Testament in the Old Covenant a priesthood the priesthood was limited to what it was limited to one tribe one tribe in Israel the Old Testament priesthood was limited to the sons of Aaron the Levites look at Leviticus 8 Leviticus 8 keep your finger in Peter there but go to Leviticus 8 verse 1 We'll see here that the priesthood in the Old Testament was limited in scope and and it couldn't be initiated by anyone outside of this family line because if they did, even King Uzziah tried to do this in Chronicles. He tried to do this and he tried to go in and become a priest and offer up sacrifices. And when he did, he was struck with leprosy. He was judged and he had leprosy until he died because he tried to usurp the role of a priest. So... In the old covenant, in the old system, before Christ, it was limited priesthood. But everything's better in Christ. Everything's made better in Christ. Everything is superior in Christ. So the priesthood is raised in Christ. Now everyone who is in Christ is called to be a servant of God as a priest, united with other priests, to serve him offerings of thanksgiving. But here it's limited. In 8.1, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread and assemble all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. When the congregation was assembled at the doorway of the tent of meeting, Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded to do. Then Moses had Aaron and his sons. That's going to be the priestly line. They came near and he washed them with water. And isn't it great to know that if you now are a priest, part of a priesthood in Christ, you have been washed with something better than water. You've been washed in the precious blood of Jesus. This could only clean up the outside. Jesus cleaned you from the inside out. Isn't that amazing? So the priesthood in Christ is much better. But Moses washed them in verse seven. He put a tunic on them and girded them with a sash and he clothed them with the robe and he put an ephod on him. And he girded him with the artistic band of the ephod with which he tied it to him. He then placed the breast piece on him. And in the breast piece, he put the urim and the thummim. He also placed the turban on his head. And on the turban at its front, he placed the golden plate, the holy crown, just as the Lord commanded. Moses then took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated it. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils in the basin and its stand to consecrate them. They were consecrated. You know what consecrated means? They were set apart. They were set apart for God's own use. And if you are a Christian, have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been consecrated, set apart to a holy priesthood. Your living stones built together in the spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Again, it doesn't say to be a holy priest. He's talking about corporately. You're you're gathered together. You're set apart, okay? You're set apart by God to be a new order of priests unto God. You are a priest unto God with other priests. And what that does, that, that puts us all on level ground, by the way, too, doesn't it? The priests were looked up to as the special men in Israel. We're all equal in Christ. And we can all do more than they could ever do, because they, even though some of those were priests, couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. You, as a holy priest in Christ, you enter the Holy of Holies every time you pray, every time you open the word and rejoice at the work of Christ. You are entering into the place that was denied access to others for centuries. You have a place at the throne of grace. It's not a throne of judgment because of the work of Christ. You can bring to God something now that these these men could never bring. You can bring thank offerings continually. Unceasing praise, unceasing thanks. Not because you're sons of Aaron, but because you're sons of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are sons, you're made heirs, you're brothers with Christ, joint heirs with Him. You're sons and daughters of God. Your priestly lineage goes back to Him. Not to Aaron, not to Melchizedek, but to Jesus. And then this would have been, again, astounding news to the readers in Peter. When when Peter was writing this and they were reading this for the first time, these Gentiles were going, what? Me? A pig eater? I can go into the holiness of God. I can stand before him. Peter's saying, yes, because you have been washed. You've been redeemed. You've been purchased out of the slave market of sin and set free to serve Jesus. And the Jews were saying when they read this, that's only for the priests. I'm now elevated to the place of a priest. And they wrap their arms around their Jewish or their Gentile brother and say, we're both priests. We can go before God now. And they're rejoicing. They're they're excited. They're encouraged because God has made them priests unto him through Christ, through the work of Jesus. We are brought to a place where we can give him praise. So Peter goes on to say that in 1st Peter chapter 2 verse 5, part C. Peter says that every Christian can now do something we couldn't do before. Before the the new covenant came. We can offer up spiritual sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable, notice that, acceptable to God, but the proviso is through Jesus Christ. Okay? You and I can bring nothing to God that's not been defiled by our sin. But when we come through the work of Jesus, who lived the perfect life, who brought a perfect offering to God the Father, and we come based on His merits, trusting in His work, our offerings, though they are weak, they are sanctified. They are brought to a place of praise in God's eyes because we are trusting in Christ who pleased Him perfectly. But again, the, the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament priests, they couldn't do this. They were called to bring sacrifices, but they, they were limited Because even when they brought a sacrifice, they had to atone for their own sins. We don't even have to do that. Jesus has atoned for us. He has forgiven us. I can enter into his presence without fear, without trembling, because Jesus entered into God the Father's presence for me and offered up a spiritual sacrifice I could never offer. He offered his own blood. He offered his life. Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9. Verse 11. Christ came again to raise everything up to its highest degree, to show us the superiority of his work, his offering, that now makes us able to be those who can bring offerings to God. Because Jesus came and fulfilled all those Old Testament types that the priests would offer. They would offer up lambs and goats. And he came and said, there's no need for this anymore. I've accomplished it. I've split the curtain. I've opened up the Holy of Holies to you because I came to fulfill those types and shadows that were seen in the goats and the blood offerings that were offered in Israel. I came to accomplish it, to let you know that there is access now to God through me. Look what it says in Hebrews 9, 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest, he is our high priest. So we're high priest in his order. When he came as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands that is not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all having obtained eternal redemption. It's done. It's obtained. It's finished to tell It is paid in full. He obtained this eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more? Jesus is greater. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works? Is that, is that where it stops? It just cleans your conscience? No. His atoning work did more than clean your conscience. He did more than wipe away your sins. He gave you his righteousness so that you would live unto him and serve the living God. You're set apart as living stones in a new house, being built together, working together for the glory of God as new priests who are called, set apart to offer continually and serve the risen Jesus through our life of obedience in sanctification. That's the kind of sacrifices God wants today. He wants spiritual sacrifices. And the New Testament defines that as living sacrifices. That's how we bring offerings to God. It's with our life. We died with Christ. And now we live for Christ. The Christian's life and the church's role is to glorify the Lord Jesus. And we do that by continually coming together and being fed on his word. Encouraging one another. Mutually And applying the truth to our lives daily, drawing strength from him, protection from him, so that we can bring to him what he deserves, which is thanksgiving. Praises. And it's beautifully seen, if you'll look with me, at Psalm 50. This is what we need to be bringing to God. Psalm 50, verse 7. It says, Hear, O my people. And I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. He's going to tell us what kind, of, what kind of worship, what kind of sacrifice, what kind of offering he wants here. He's going to tell Israel this. And he's speaking to us as well today, saying, this is what I want. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field It's mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. Giving thanks for God's provision in Christ brings the blessing of God's honoring you for trusting in Him. It's amazing. Verse 23 goes on to say, He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving, thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his ways aright, I shall show the salvation of God. We can now bring to God a, a thank offering, a praise offering, for what Christ has accomplished for us. Again, Romans 12 is what tells us that we need to bring our whole entire life before Him. As a living sacrifice. Jesus gave his life for us. Therefore we should in response. Draw near to him. And give our lives totally unto him. Out of thanksgiving. Not out of fear of condemnation. Again. Obedience and sanctification. Flows out of a thankful. Forgiven heart. Holiness is derived. Out of thankfulness. For what Christ has given you. A walk of holiness is produced out of thanksgiving. That's the whole point of the New Testament. We are not legalists. We are forgiven sinners who are praising God for our abiding grace. And because of that, we hate the things that God hates. We love the things that God loves. Even though we don't always do those things as we ought. Paul struggled with that in Romans 7. He wanted to do right. But something inside of him made him want to do right. What was that? It was the spirit of God. It was drawing him to the truth out of thankfulness to what Christ has done. That's why he wanted to put away sin in the flesh. And take on his hope in Christ. We're called to do that here. We're called to bring spiritual sacrifices as a church. At Sovereign Grace, we're called to bring spiritual sacrifices to God. You're a holy priesthood. You're a, a new order of priests through Christ in a new house. His church, so that you could bring him what he deserves, which is praise and honor. And you do that in, in practical ways. You do that by serving, by loving, by rebuking, by encouraging, by restoring, by preaching, by evangelizing, by singing. All those things, though, you have to put the word at the end of that, is doing those things together. Doing those things together as a spiritual house, a spiritual family united in christ by god's mercy by the father's mercy christ's redeeming work and the spirit's power to seal us and keep us so that we can bring god praises when we gather here corporately we come together do you understand this we come together and we when we're united in truth and in love we are an expression of thanks offerings to god with one voice you're worshiping the living savior And he is pleased because Jesus died to be praised. He died to be honored. He died to be glorified. He didn't die because we were worthy. He died because we were unworthy. He died to make us able to bring him the worth he deserves. And we do that by coming, as Peter tells us, to him daily. We need to come to him. We need to draw near to Jesus daily in word and in prayer. Listen, if you want to grow in your intimacy with Jesus, it's not through mysticism, it's through prayer and through the Word of God. God speaks in His Word clearly, powerfully, and effectually in the heart of a Christian. He planted that seed, remember? He planted that seed in us so that it would grow as we feed upon it. He nourishes it. And for the Christian, you long for fellowship, you long for the Word. With God, you long that that intimacy with God, like a newborn baby, longs for nourishing milk continually. And we long to grow in that so that we can come together and bring spiritual sacrifices to God corporately. That's what we're called to do as a church. I think if if you look throughout history and you look throughout the church history and even the book of Acts, you see that when the church comes together around God's word, Acts chapter 2, when the church gathers together, begins to feed on the word, They feed immediately on fellowship. They edify. They build up one another. They put out sin. They love to restore. And wherever they come together, they worship together. They they fervently love and they honor Christ. They honor the one who is the founder and the foundation of the church. They honor the architect and the designer who died for this spiritual house. So understand this. When you come on a Sunday morning... You're coming to worship the one who died to make you a priest unto God, to put you in a place of protection in the church, to give you his spirit to abide in you, to equip you to serve him by serving others in the church. And listen, it's, it's upside down to the world's thinking, and that's why it's something they stumble over. But the more we edify one another here, the more effectively you're going to act out the gospel out there in the world. The more you know, the more you grow in truth and doctrine, the more you understand of the gospel, the more effectual you're going to be in sanctification and evangelization. You don't come here just to feel good. I hope you do feel good. I hope you are encouraged. I also hope you're convicted. Because I hope that through that you're drawn closer to God in reliance on his spirit and his word. But I hope you come here to be equipped to serve Jesus. That's why you come. You come to bring him praise. And I think there is nothing more encouraging than to hear you all singing truth to God. Not to Brett, not to me, not to anybody up here, but singing unto God. And a lot of times, listen, we'll start worrying about the people around us. Don't do that. Drop that and sing to Jesus. Live to Jesus. Preach for Jesus. Evangelize for Jesus. Go to work for Jesus. Everything you do, do it for Him. Because Peter says He is the cornerstone. He's the one who makes us able to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. It's through Christ. So let's praise Him today as our cornerstone, as our foundation. And let's praise Him for giving us the church. I am I am extremely encouraged by you, the church, the sovereign grace. I am extremely encouraged by seeing you growing together and i'm also extremely encouraged by the diversity in the church i think that's healthy i think that's part of it we don't all have to look the same and act the same as far as our personalities go but we're all united in the same foundation in christ and that adds beauty to the diversity of the church just like the diversity of flowers in the field just because there's lots of different kinds of flowers doesn't mean they're ugly it means it's a portrait of God's grace and beauty to take what can be considered as different and blend them together and make a beautiful picture. That's what he's doing in the church. And that's what you are. And I give thanks to God for you every day. So day. Let's pray and give thanks to him for bringing us here together today. Lord Jesus, we come to you today and we want to thank you that you have promised to build your church. It's not a man's role to build the church. It's your role. You've called us to be servants in the church, to be a holy priesthood, to serve you by serving others and by serving the world around us, by sharing the truth of the scriptures. Father, we pray that you would be honored with our sacrifices of praise today, with our time of fellowship, with our time of singing, with our time of preaching and teaching. God, I pray that you would be pleased with this spiritual sacrifice as well as when we walk out of this building and we have fellowship with our family tonight around the word or in prayer or as we work tomorrow or as moms care for their children, husbands get up and go to their jobs. God, I pray that you would be receiving all of that as a praise to you, as a as an act of thanksgiving because you have given us the strength to do it and the place in which we can be effective for you. You have ordained here by p- putting us in a place where we have others who can serve and and reach out to this community. We thank you for that. We thank you for your many blessings you give us that we neglect to thank you for on a daily basis. Life and breath and food. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to recognize that those are gifts that need to be given back to you and thank offerings every day as we realize the privileges we now have through Christ. We pray that you would grow this spiritual house, this priesthood into a people who would bring you much praise and offerings. In Jesus' name, amen.